Hey guys, welcome back to Aimstone channel. I am with the Robert Bidlow. He needs no introduction. I'm pretty sure most of you are familiar with him. And those of you who are not, he is a philosopher, economist, and of course, a Bitcoiner. Robert, how are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Okay, so uh, let's start. The first question would be, of course, you created What is Money Show. We had like nine episodes with Michael Saylor. So how would you define like what is money? Uh, it's a obviously seemingly simple question, um, but clearly a very big one. We're on almost episode 400 now on the show, and I think I have more questions than answers at this point. <laughs> um, I, I could tell you where I'm at with it currently is that asking the question, what is money, has taken me into this rabbit hole of language um, in that you know, words are very useful, obviously. We use them every day. We think through them. You know, we have internal dialogue composed of words. We communicate with words. Um, we can look into the minds of people in the past through words, you know, when we read books. But as indispensable as language and words are, they also seem to be limited for dealing with reality as it is. And as far as I can tell, Reality is very complex, you know, um, things are very deeply interconnected. It's hard to draw clear boundaries between where one thing stops and another thing begins. And so I think kind of like asking uh, a question, you know, trying to define other fundamental terms. When you ask questions like what is truth? What is justice? What is love? What is beauty? What is value? Things like this. You run into other deep rabbit holes. Like, you know, philosophers have been arguing about these concepts for hundreds and thousands of years in some cases. And I feel very grateful that I stumbled upon one of those um, and one that perhaps hasn't been asked directly or clearly enough. And so asking the question, what is money? You know, it really highlights, um, I guess, our, our limited ability to describe what is, which might be the limitations of language itself. And so it's been analogized to a lot of things, um, typically very primordial concepts, like Mr. Saylor took the perspective that money is energy. Um, energy is something that's clearly very fundamental. Einstein taught us that energy equals mass times the speed of light squared. So energy and mass are interchangeable in effect. You could say that mass is like low frequency energy or frozen energy. And so really everything in the universe that we know of is composed of energy, uh, according to that equation. And energy, you know, it also has this connotation of we talk about people having good energy or bad energy. Um, there's, you know, certain spiritual disciplines that go into masculine versus feminine energy. Um, so that's one way to look at money, right? It's a way of a way for human beings to exchange energy, like a symbolic medium for energy exchange. And the energy we're typically exchanging with one another is labor, right? It's what, what did we do? What did we create that's useful to other people? 
doesn't have to be physical labor per se. It could also be cognitive labor, right? You could write a book, um, which involves some physical labor, but mostly cognitive labor. And that can be very valuable to people. So people will pay you money, right, for a really good book. Um, so I, that's one way to look at it. Another thing, uh, another primordial concept money has been described as is money is time. Um, this one's kind of intuitive. If you've ever had a job, you know, you, especially an hourly job or with an hourly wage, you go to work and you trade your time and energy for money. And then you take that instrument we call money out into the marketplace and you trade it for the time and energy of other people. Um, I think that's also a good framing for understanding the problems with central banking and fiat currency. If you have one institution that can produce new units of money ad infinitum with no restraints, diluting everyone else's share of that, you know, the purchasing power stored in that money, which purchasing power we could say is a component or a composite of time and, and energy, right? It's how much, how many favors you can redeem from the market. So if you have one institution that can produce new units of currency or new units of money, and other people are not allowed to do that, right? This is the crime we typically call counterfeiting. Then you sort of intuitively see the asymmetry um, that one group can basically print money and steal time and energy from other people. So that's why I, the phrase that I've used to try and distill this down is inflation is legal counterfeiting. Counterfeiting is criminal inflation. And so, like, in my opinion, the most severe socioeconomic problem in the world is the monopolization and counterfeiting of currency, i.e. central banking. Um, I guess that would be kind of the ethical destination when you ask the question, what is money? If you look at it as time and energy, you see that there's one institution that can, that can produce new units of it. No one else can under the threat of coercion or compulsion. So, um, it's it's maybe a bit of a bleak picture. People don't like to accept that reality, but I think when you look across human history, coercion, compulsion, theft, slavery, war, I mean, these have been the norms of human history. So we're, we're perhaps a bit ignorant to think that we've tamed that beast within us in modernity. Um, another way I like to think about money is, you know, it's sort of less of a thing and it's more of an attribute. So everything that people trade in the marketplace has some degree of moneyness attached to it. And that degree of moneyness is really just how widely accepted the thing is. So for instance, uh, water probably has more moneyness than purple telescopes, right? In most markets, because well, we all need water to survive, so that would lend it to being more widely accepted in trade, whereas purple telescopes are a very specific form of good, right, that only a few nerdy astronomers uh, that are into the color purple would really want purple telescopes, so they're pro probably not as widely accepted in trade as water. And so that helps understanding the emergence of money, that it's not a government creation is not a product of the central bank. It's something that emerges in any economy, right? It's, you know, as uh, the Austrians have said, it's just the most marketable good. 
which can be interpreted as the most tradable asset or the most liquid asset. And um, I think it also highlights the importance of Bitcoin, understanding money as an attribute, because everything prior to Bitcoin was just an approximation of money. You know, even gold, which has, oh, let's say probably a 12 to $14 trillion market cap today. About 20% of that market cap is from demand registered for gold as an industrial use commodity. So gold is used in dental uh, prosthetics, electronics, etc. There's a certain cohort of demand that's using gold for that purpose. The other 80% roughly of gold's market cap is for gold as money, right? As a store of value asset. So that uh, additional 80% market value that's on top of gold's industrial use case is its monetary premium or its moneyness, right? It's, it's the, the market's appraisal of its value, of its moneyness value, let's say. And Bitcoin's interesting because it's the first monetary technology we've ever had that has no industrial use case. So it has 0% industrial use demand, right? No one's buying Bitcoin to put it in their teeth or to put it into, to use it to manufacture computers. It's the first asset in human history that's pure moneyness, right? It's a pure money. It's, it's a 100% of its market cap uh, is from demand being registered on Bitcoin as a monetary technology, purely and wholly. So I think that's a useful framing too. And it sort of debunks a lot of these other arguments that, you know, Bitcoin's not useful because it's not tangible or Bitcoin is, uh, has no intrinsic value, which is a very, anyone that uses that term intrinsic value, you must immediately question all of their economics knowledge because we've known since the mid 1800s that value is subjective. So value does not exist intrinsic to anything. Right. Like back to the case of water, you'd say, oh, well, water is intrinsically valuable. We all need it to drink and um, survive, right, to bathe and all of these other things. Well, water is not so valuable to a drowning man. You know, he, he needs anything but water in that moment. So value is subjective. Um, Bitcoin. Yeah, asking that question, what is money, I think ultimately leads you to Bitcoin, as is clearly evidenced from. Uh, the many conversations we've had on the show, it's the first pure money or the first, or the ultimate monetary technology, something like that. And um, money's kind of a strange animal because it exists as a phenomenon between a lot of things, right? It's a medium of exchange. It's not any one thing. We can't say that gold is money. We can't say that silver is money. We can't say that U.S. dollars are money um, because, in fact, the the social construct we call money has been assigned to many different things across time. And it's ultimately just which tool humans find best for the job. And it's my strong opinion that Bitcoin is the best tool for the job of money we've ever had, right? We need, we want money to store purchasing power across time, which Bitcoin perfects by having a perfectly fixed supply, right? It's uninflatable. That's why the free market selected gold as money historically, because it was the least inflatable asset. And we want money uh, to be able to transport that purchasing power across space so we can transact with people all over the world. 
and Bitcoin's a natively digital, non-corporeal asset. So it allows us to move purchasing power across time and space in a way that no other technology has ever allowed us to. So those are a few things, um, but <laughs> I would say, I think it, I've been gathering answers from guests. Um, I've been, I put some blog posts up about this. So I provided maybe a dozen answers to that question, what is money based on the conversations I've had. And I have a running document with probably another 30 to 40 answers to that question. So it's very broad. Um, this is why we've spent literally hundreds of hours on the show talking about it and have not exhausted the subject. Robert, uh, so your definition when you describe money, you describe as a language or Michael Saylor describes as an energy. Would you agree that what you're saying is that you describe one of the properties of money that is mean of exchange? Could you say the last part of the question again? So uh, money, like traditional definition of money, it has like seven properties. It has a mean of exchange in the account, portable, durable, uh, divisible, fungible, and the most important one is of course store of value. And when you say money is language or energy, would you, would you agree that you are describing only like one property of money that is mean of exchange? Well, we should first distinguish between the functions of money and the properties of money. So the first three functions of money, uh, most widely considered are money as a store of value. Again, meaning that it holds its purchasing power across time. So you can reap profits in some economic activity, but you can store that, uh, that economic surplus that you've earned in a medium that will hold its purchasing power into the future. That's the store of value function of money. Um, not to get too semantic, but technically, if I'm, if I'm looking to the Austrian School of Economics, all action is an expression of value. So you can't really technically store value. I think a more appropriate definition for the first function of money would be a store of purchasing power. Um, the second function of money is as a medium of exchange. So that's back to what I said earlier about moving purchasing power across space so that you can transact with other market actors and basically use money as a medium through which you can obtain the thing you ultimately want, right? And this, this resolves the non-coincidence of wants problem where if you have something that I don't want or I have something that you don't want, we don't have to barter with through some chain of trade to try and get to one another in a transaction, we can just mediate the trade through money, right? So money again is serving that function of the most marketable good or the most widely accepted asset. Um, so you've got store of value, which again, I'd call store of purchasing power. You've got medium of exchange, which is, uh, you know, money's function as an actual mediating tool in the marketplace, resolving barter. And then the third function of money is a unit of account. Um, unit of account is basically something that lets us perform economic calculation. So this is where you get into that idea of money being a language of value that instead of saying, I guess it's first important to understand what a price is in this context. A price is an exchange ratio between any two goods. So you can, and this is a, it's a ratio, right? It's a fraction. So you have a, a numerator and a denominator. 
The numerator, which is the top number of a fraction, would be the thing you are evaluating. And the denominator, which is the bottom number in a fraction, would be the thing you are evaluating through or the frame of reference, right? So I could say this house costs 11 cars, right? I can price a house in 11, uh, let's get specific, right? 11 red Teslas. This Malibu house costs 11 red Teslas. You could say something like that. Um, but obviously that creates this giant constellation of exchange ratios where you can price anything in terms of anything else. So it would be very confusing for human beings to try and communicate about prices in that way, right? If we're constantly trying to think in terms of fractions, one good in, in terms of fractions of another good. And so what we do instead is we, we collapse all of that data into one common language of economic numeracy that we call the pricing system. And in this sense, money is that language that allows us to communicate about exchange ratios in a much more simplified way. So the Malibu house, if it costs 11 red Teslas, well, we could equally say the Malibu house costs $440,000 and one red Tesla costs $40,000. So it's much simpler to think about um, exchange ratios through money rather than thinking about them as they are. And so those are the functions of money, but those are separate from the properties of money. Again, store of purchasing power, medium of exchange, unit of account are the functions. This is what money does for us. But then there are the properties of money, which are the qualities we seek in a good monetary technology. And this gets a little tricky for people because again you might think if you want that red tesla that you want the red tesla right i want that car that's the thing i want but if you look a little bit deeper that's not actually the thing you want what you want is an ability to be transported on demand from anywhere you are to anywhere you want to go right what you want well the red tesla maybe is uh some social signaling perhaps right you might want to signal to the world hey i care about the environment i you know i like electric cars um without getting into the whole debate about fossil fuels and climate change that just might be someone's intention when they purchase a tesla uh it might also just be a way to pick up girls right maybe you're a guy and you think oh if i get the red tesla i'll look so cool i can go on these dates you know blah 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 so it's not the asset itself that you're actually looking for in any case, right? This could be anything, right? A kitchen knife, right? Do you, do you want the kitchen knife? Is that what you actually want? No, you want to be able to cut food. You want to be able to have dinner parties, right? You want to be able to carve the turkey on Thanksgiving, whatever the thing is. So it's ultimately what we're actually seeking in any good are the services that it can render to us. And so this is what gets into the properties of a thing, right? If I want the red Tesla, I want a car that's fast. I want a car that looks cool. I want a car that's safe. You know, these different properties or qualities of the asset. If I want the really good kitchen knife, I want one that's sharp. I want one that's easy to clean. I want one that uh, doesn't bend easily, whatever the qualities that you're seeking in the tool are. And so when you look at money, um, and I get these, these five properties from Gary North, uh, he's got an excellent book called Honest Money that's available as a free PDF online. I think there's basically five 
properties or qualities of money that people seek. And I've elaborated on these a lot, so I won't go into detail here unless you have any specific questions, but basically you want money that is divisible so you can transact at different scales. You want money that's durable so that it doesn't rot over time, right? Like fruit would not be a good money because, well, it rots. Metals are a better money because they don't break down so, so quickly or so easily. You want a money that's portable so that you can transact across space, again, to engage that medium of exchange function of money. You want a money that's recognizable, meaning that you can verify that it is the asset it, it is represented to be. So, you know, this is actually where we get the term sound money, that if you dropped a gold coin from a certain height, it would make a very particular sound. And that was a rule of thumb people would use to determine if the gold was authentic or if it were, you know, some gold-plated metal, something like that. And then finally, you want a money that is scarce, right? Meaning that its supply is relatively inflexible, that, it, that supply can't be easily expanded because if it can be easily expanded, someone can dilute you, right? They can print new units or produce new units of the money and steal the purchasing power that you have stored in that money when you're using it as a savings technology and trying to transport purchasing power across time. So I think this is another key answer to the question, what is money? It's like, well, what is money? It's whatever asset best fulfills these needs, these desires, these services that people seek in money. And I think it's a really good frame to understand why gold became money. Um, and again, I'm just gonna say this quickly. We can go into more detail if you like, but we've tried a lot of different things as money across history. Of all the things we've tried, monetary metals were the most divisible, the most durable, the most recognizable, and the most portable assets uh, we found. So they were the best tool for the job. And of the monetary metals, gold exhibited the greatest scarcity, which is saying it, it had the least flexible supply. It was the hardest thing to produce. So that meant gold was the best asset for storing purchasing power across time. And that's why gold outcompeted all other monetary metals on the market and is, uh, you know, the de facto free market money today. So that's, and then if you also look at Bitcoin through that lens of what are the properties of good money, you'll see something that's basically perfected, all of them, right? Bitcoin basically exhibits perfect divisibility, durability, recognizability, portability, and scarcity, right? The first fixed supply asset we've ever had. Not, it's, not, it's no longer about which asset has the least flexible supply. Bitcoin has a perfectly inflexible supply. It never changes. So any new unit of demand registered for Bitcoin, cannot, you can't produce more Bitcoin to satisfy that demand. It can only increase its price, basically. And so when you get into this rabbit hole on the, the real nature of money, the functions of money, uh, the properties of good money, I think it's useful for understanding why gold became money and why Bitcoin is disrupting gold um, as the primary monetary technology on earth. Got it. Uh, Robert, how would you define unit of account? And second question would be, would you agree that money have to be store value first before before they become a mean of exchange? 
Yeah, so a unit of account is, I mean, essentially what I tried to just describe with the exchange ratio um, example. You could think about, so Mises would say that the only function of money is as a medium of exchange, actually. And you could you could sort of think about that, like if you're, if you're using money to store purchasing power across time, you're actually exchanging that with your future self. So what you're doing when you save in a money is you're saying, I'm choosing not to spend this to go buy any good or service that it might uh, be used to trade for, and I'm instead choosing to hold the money into the future. So you're incurring this opportunity cost of all the goods and services that you could otherwise buy by saving in money. So you're sort of mediating this exchange with yourself across time. And I'm storing purchasing power into the future for my future self, right? So even the store of value or store of purchasing power function can sort of be collapsed into a medium of exchange function. If you look at yourself as different people every day, right? Like every day you're a different person, you've changed, you've eaten new food, you have new ideas. And when you're saving, you're trading with your future self, right? I could go out and buy the Lambo today and that might make today me really happy. But me in two weeks might not be so happy with that if Bitcoin goes up 2x or gold goes up 30%, whatever it may be. So there's a trade off, right? Every decision you're making, and again, the word trade off, right? It's, it has to do with opportunity cost. You're foregoing one thing to do another thing. And in the case of saving, you're saying, I'm foregoing what I could buy, what I could consume today, and I'm holding the money instead. Uh, medium of exchange is a bit more obvious, right? It's what we're actually using in the present to trade with other people. Um, you know, money is a medium of exchange, right? It's the thing we use to trade goods through, right? If you want to sell your house, well, you'll sell your house into probably dollars. And then assuming you still want to live in a house, you'll probably go and buy another house, right? So you've mediated the exchange of houses through money. Um, and to answer your question on unit of account, and again, echoing Mises's point that the only function of money is as a medium of exchange, you can think of the unit of account function as a medium of exchange among human minds, right? That we're actually thinking, talking, negotiating, and executing trades through money, right? There's, we're thinking in terms of money. It's almost like, and back to the language of value thing, words you know it's it's we we very often if not always think through words right that's your internal dialogue that's how you talk to other people you know thinking out loud obviously in conversation but how often do you stop and really think about the nature of words themselves uh, it could be argued that words are a medium of exchange for human conception right we we plug these uh little little pieces of social consensus, right? Each word has a meaning, right? The meaning is what we've all agreed that it has. We map that onto a conceptual structure and then we trade ideas through words, right? This is, this is the, the superpower of being human, basically, being able to speak and write and think um, through language. So in the same way that words are a medium of exchange for human conception, you could say that money is a medium of exchange of human action, right? It's actually telling us who rendered what favors to the market that many people deemed to be useful and who's owed favors in return. 
So the unit of account function, right, specifically as it manifests in the pricing system, is a medium of exchange across human minds, right? It's, it's telling us about human action and its, its consequences. And then to the second part of your question, um, yeah, there's a, an economist named William Jevons who did a lot of work on this. And he basically said that money was initially used as a collectible. So people would find these shining nuggets in a riverbed or in a mountainside, wherever they may have found it, and they would collect it, right? Just because it's, it's shiny, it's beautiful, looks like the sun. And eventually, um, you know, it would be maybe demanded for jewelry or adornment. You know, it, it, there was some demand for gold, basically, but initially it was just this collectible demand. And then eventually as productivity increases, and again, because the gold is very scarce, right? It's, it's rare and it's hard to find. The actual purchasing power of gold tends, tended to remain constant or even increase over time. So as our productivity increases and we produce more goods and services, right? More chickens, more farm tools, whatever the things were, that's being, uh, there's more of that, but there's the same amount or, or barely more gold. So then each unit of gold could buy you more things as our productivity expanded. So gold does this evolutionary phase change from a collectible to a store of purchasing power. And then as gold accumulates more purchasing power in this way, well, people over time figure out, hey, this thing's also divisible and it's durable and it's portable and it's recognizable. I can trade across space with this thing pretty well. And so gold starts to be used as a medium of exchange. And then finally, when a, a money is really widely accepted as a medium of exchange, as gold would ultimately become, right, especially with the advent of coinage, gold-backed currencies, et cetera, you actually start to think through the money, right? You're, you're, you're denominating trade and, and um, other commercial deals in terms of the money. So there is this evolutionary sequence from collectible to store of value to medium of exchange to unit of account. And that's a really useful thing to understand when you look at the monetization process of Bitcoin. Uh, in the beginning, Bitcoin was just this collectible, right? You could go to websites, there were Bitcoin faucets. You could literally click this faucet and receive 50 Bitcoin, right? Basically worthless magic internet money, as many people still conceive of it today. But eventually, um, you know, based on the, the properties that Bitcoin exhibits as money, it starts to establish a market price, right? People do start to trade in this thing. Um, the number of dollars in the world keeps going up really fast. The number of other currencies, uh, their supply expands very quickly, yet Bitcoin supply stays on this fixed algorithmic schedule. Um, and so this is the magic of number go up technology, right? You have the same amount of Bitcoin being expressed in more and more dollars or other fiat currencies. So what does that mean? Well, the price goes up, right? As we expand fiat currency supplies, the price of Bitcoin in terms of those fiat currency supplies goes up. Um, and so I think that's where we are with Bitcoin today is that it's still kind of in this store of value phase. It makes a lot more sense to hold and save in Bitcoin, considering that it only represents about 0.5% of the savings, the cash savings or cash balances in the world. 
So if you would expect Bitcoin to outcompete other monies as gold did, uh, it has roughly a 200x upside from here. Uh, and then finally, you know, when people, when the thing stores enough purchasing power, and th these aren't clean breaks, I should say, right? There's people that use Bitcoin as a medium of exchange today. I, I do it. People use Bitcoin as a as unit of account today. People think in terms of Bitcoin uh, when weighing their opportunity costs on any economic decision. Um, but so you you go from you go through this sequence, and I think Bitcoin is predominantly in the store of value phase. When it gets to probably ten, twenty, thirty trillion dollars in market cap, I think you'll see it being used more widely as a medium of exchange. Because those who adopted it early have huge unrealized gains in their positions. When Bitcoin's five hundred thousand dollars a coin and someone bought it for a thousand, well, that's a huge incentive to spend, right? That's a huge incentive to use it as a medium of exchange. And then again, just like gold, once it's used widely enough as a medium of exchange, I think people will start to price things in it, um, and they'll damn sure start to price things in it after U.S. dollar hyperinflates or whatever their local fiat currency Sorry. is. Robert, would you agree when they start price uh, goods and services in a Bitcoin, for example, gold, this is when gold or Bitcoin becomes a unit of account? Because- uh, yeah. yeah, again, but these aren't, there's not bright lines here, right? There's people that use it as a unit of account today, but the last point I was trying to make is, if your local fiat currency hyperinflates, if you don't start pricing things in another fiat currency, well, you can't hyper hyperinflation by definition means you can't price anything in the money, right? The, the thing is expanding so quickly and holding purchasing power so poorly that you can't even use it. You can't save in it. If you can't save in it, you can't spend it. If you can't spend it, you can't think in terms of it, right? So the whole, that whole evolutionary progression of uh, the functions of money collapses, right? With the money itself. So what happens, the, the big question is, when you can't, if you're in Zimbabwe and the Zimbabwean dollar hyperinflates, well, you dollarize, right? You switch to the U.S. dollar. But what happens when the U.S. dollar hyperinflates? You know, you're left, there's no other options, right? You, you either price things in gold or you price things in Bitcoin. So I think that's pretty much the path Bitcoin will follow, one that was parallel with gold's monetization. But it will accelerate towards a unit of account as we see fiat currencies hyperinflate. Uh, in the developed world. Got it. Um, going back to money, as we know, a fiat currency is being uh, debased every single year and it's uh, failed to fulfill one of the properties, which is store store value. Uh, if it's failed to fulfill one property, would you say that fiat is not money? Yeah, I think you can... It's currency? You can delaminate the concepts of money and currency. Yeah. So currency, we derive from the word current, right? And that it flows, right? It's traded widely. Um, and this is important, right? Money is a medium of exchange. So in one sense, you could say that fiat currency is money in the sense that it's very widely accepted, right? The U.S. dollar is probably the most widely accepted asset in the world today. Um, however, it's not money in the sense that it does not emerge on the free market. So it, it does. It is not the most marketable good, um, due to people just choosing the best tool for themselves. 
there's actually the whole bait and switch that occurred, right? The U.S. dollar used to be redeemable for gold. So the dollar was gold. It was just a proxy yeah. for gold. And then basically um, the U.S. rug pulled the world in 1971, right? Dollar is no longer gold. It's now money because we say it is. So you could – I try to think of currency as the domain of sociopolitical structures like the state, like the central bank, Um these institutions that arrogate themselves the authority to print and control, that's currency, right? That's currency today. It's political currency. Um, whereas money, I think, has to be something selected on the market. It's, otherwise, it's just not. It's, you're talking about like a centrally planned tool versus a free market selected tool. And I think any money that is decoupled from the free market just fails as money ultimately because then you end up centrally planning the supply and distribution of that money and that leads to hyperinflation so it sure you could i guess argue that it's money in the sense that it's widely accepted but i would call it currency instead just to, to distinguish between the two and um bitcoin in that same line of thought Bitcoin could become currency, right? If it if it succeeds as money and it outcompetes everything else, well then it will be widely used as a medium of exchange. So then it will flow like a current uh, between the hands of market actors. But again, back to the limitations of language, right? These are important things to talk about and distinguish between, but there's not really bright lines between them. And so I like to try and focus my thinking on money itself uh, and just leave currency alone, right? Let states have currency, let them, whatever, let it be the domain of the state, right? Run your central bank as we've always run central banks. It, you know, the currency will fail as all fiat currencies have always failed. Uh, that failure will drive the monetization of Bitcoin because as people realize they can't store their purchasing power safely in dollars or whatever fiat currency or their local bank, they will seek alternatives, and the best alternative in the world is Bitcoin, right? There's just no question about that in terms of which one exhibits the best properties and therefore best fulfills the functions of money. Yep. Uh, would you say that Bitcoin is better money than gold? Absolutely. Um, gold's failed as money. You know, gold is the reason we have the central bank. Um, again, looking through that framework of the properties of money, the one real area that gold and monetary metals more generally suffer is in terms of portability. Uh, they're physical assets, right? So they're expensive and risky to secure. We build giant bank vaults around them. Uh, you need lots of armed guards, all kinds of security protocols. When you want to move them, it's even more risky, right? You have to have, you know, you know, armored trains, armored trucks, armored boats, military escorts, especially if you're moving large uh, quantities of gold across the Atlantic Ocean as, as states have done, right? States have settled with one another in physical gold. Um, and there's always a very expensive transaction cost associated with that in terms of security. So the problem with physical money is that it's way more economically efficient to centralize it in one place and issue a derivative on top of it called a banknote or a warehouse receipt. And once you do that, you know, the other 
adage that money is power. When you concentrate that much power into one place and you give the keys to one institution, well, power corrupts. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. Yep. So the institutions that grow up around that money are the most corrupt institutions that have ever existed, which are the currency counterfeiting cartels we call central banks today. So you end up with the situation where you need to centralize the custody of gold to make it more useful as money because it's not portable enough. So we need to have gold-backed currencies uh, or electronic representations of them. That gives the <clears throat> bank or the institution the ability to start engaging in fractional reserve banking where they actually over-issue liabilities to that gold. So they start issuing more banknotes than the gold reserves justify. And so that's a, a fraudulent, insolvent institution, right? I, um, a bank that issues banknotes saying it has 200 kilograms of gold on deposit and it only has 100 kilograms in the vault that's insolvent, right? They have more liabilities outstanding than they have assets that can back it. And it's also fraudulent because the people that deposited the gold there did so with full expectation that they could redeem their gold at any time. So you go from full reserve banking to fractional reserve banking and the fraction gets more and more fractionated before you ultimately get into a 1971 situation where you move to a zero reserve banking paradigm, which is called fiat currency. So gold has failed as money and it's failed many times, many places. Um, it does hold purchasing power over time because governments can't do anything about that. But when you try to scale go gold into a transactional medium of exchange, you end up with a centralization problem and then you go into fractional reserve banking and then zero reserve banking, fiat currency, uh, hyperinflation. So there's this technical glitch, this technological glitch in gold that I think just prevents it from being uh, scalable as money. And of course, Bitcoin does not suffer from that, right? If you're just looking at, um, through that frame of the five properties of money, again, Bitcoin's basically perfected all of them. Uh, if we just focus on portability, which is where gold failed, Bitcoin is digital gold, as we say. So it's gold that you can move across a telephone wire, right? You can move with a RF uh, radio frequency, you can move it through an internet cable. So it, you don't need to centralize the custody of Bitcoin because Bitcoin is non-physical. And this makes a huge difference uh, in terms of the institutions that will grow up on this economic standard or this monetary standard. And the other really important part when we're talking about the physicality of money is that when money's physical, it invites violence. You know, if I can break into your house and find your gold, well, I don't need to negotiate with you. I'll just clock you over the head and take the gold, right? But if money is digital and it's non-physical, it can be custodied in a very sophisticated way, right? In a way that you can't even necessarily coerce somebody out of their private keys when you use things like a multi-key or multi-signature solution. And I think it's in that way it serves as an inhibitor to violence. And this is one of the really the biggest ideas in Bitcoin is that it actually makes, you know, petty crime less effective. It's harder to steal people's Bitcoin, again, when it's custodied properly. But it also, that same dynamic holds at the geopolitical level. If a country chooses to hold, its, uh, hold Bitcoin as a treasury reserve asset 
Well, then all of a sudden, it doesn't make so much sense to invade them because you're not going to be able to conquer them and, you know, raid their central bank and take their gold. You're going to spend all this money trying to go to war with them and conquering them. But at the end of that process, there's not going to be any money to steal because Bitcoin's impossible to steal if it's custody properly. So th this is one of the really big ideas in Bitcoin, that it's actually a, a brand new incentive structure that actually tilts human action away from coercion, compulsion, and violence and toward cooperation, production, and peace. Um, and it, it sounds radical, but I think if you study humans, like we, we are incentive responsive creatures. We respond to incentives. So if you can't steal the thing, you're much less likely to be violent towards me, right? If, if you can't steal my lunch money, you're much less likely to bully me. And, um, you know, that, that holds a lot of promise, I think, for the future of human civilization, that we can actually learn to deal with one another by contract rather than armed conflict. And, um, yeah, that's why I think Bitcoin has also been described as hope, right? It gives people a lot of hope, not only for their own individual future, but also for the, the aggregate future of the human race. Got it. And as we know, um, QE like started back in 2008, 2009. Federal Reserve literally inflated their balance sheet. They went from like 800 billion all the way to like 8 trillions, like 10x in the past, or is it like 13 years or something like that? And gold is still yet to um, hit the high, like in 2011, I believe it was like $2,000. And now it's also $2,000, and yet Bitcoin uh, skyrocketed. So why do you think gold? Uh, failed uh, to increase in price while central bank uh, debased currency? Yeah, the first thing I would say is that quantitative easing did not start in 2008. Quantitative easing, the counterfeiting of currency by central banks, started with the beginning of central banks. If we're talking about in the U.S., that was in 1913 yep. with the inception of the Federal Reserve. So QE, which is the euphemism for counterfeiting currency, has been going on as long as there's been central banking. That's the whole point of central banking. Again, it's a currency counterfeiting cartel. That's all, it's in the business to counterfeit currency and to stop anyone else from getting in the business. That's the point of the business. So QE has been going on for, for as long as there have been central banks. Um, it accelerates, right? It accelerated in 2008. It accelerated in 2020. Um, these bailout packages are being sold as something that's in the public's interest, right? Oh, there's a global pandemic. We need to print money and send everyone a check. Um, but if you dig into those numbers a little bit, we had, I hope this, I'm saying this correctly. I think it was, um, there's 130 million US households. We printed like $6 trillion. So it worked out to something like $46,000 per US household that was printed. Well, each U.S. household received like three or $4,000 in checks. So where did the other forty-two or $43,000 go? You guessed it. Political insiders, central bankers, et cetera, right? It's a scam. Um, they sell it as though it's in the public's interest, but it's not. To answer the question why gold price hasn't responded as strongly to this currency counterfeiting as Bitcoin, 
Um, I think estimates are like 20 to 25% of the total global gold supply is owned by central banks, actually. And again, because gold lacks portability, uh, the derivatives market for it is gigantic, right? It's, I think there's 200x more paper claims on gold in the world today than there actually is physical gold. And when you have that much leverage built into a system, you can manipulate its price uh, significantly. And again, because it's port it lacks portability, it's expensive and difficult to take final settlement of the gold. So it's very unlikely that people are all going to withdraw their physical gold at once. People just sort of keep playing this confidence game that is the, the paper market for gold. And this gives a lot of leeway to central powers to manipulate the price. If you wanted to go down that rabbit hole, there's a couple things you could check out. One is called GATA.org, G-A-T-A.org. It's the Gold Antitrust Task Force. It's done a lot of research on how the gold price has been manipulated uh, over the past several decades. There's also a book called Gold Wars by Ferdinand Lips. He talks about things like the London Gold Pool and other schemes that states have used to manipulate the price of gold. Um, but again, it's all rooted in that technological uh, flaw of gold, which is that it lacks portability. So it lacks an ability for market actors to take final settlement because it's expensive and difficult to move. And therefore, you can never establish good price discovery on the asset. And you, you create a lot of room for shenanigans, right? For price manipulation. Uh, again, all the things I just mentioned. So that's why. And the reason Bitcoin has responded so strongly to this is because central banks, so far as we know, don't own very much gold, uh, Bitcoin at all. And even if they do establish a large position in Bitcoin, Bitcoin is highly portable. So it's much simpler for people to take final settlement of that asset and um, call the bluff, call the proverbial bluff of any games that are being played in the paper markets. Now, that's not to say there aren't games being played. There's a lot of Bitcoin on exchanges. There's a lot of Bitcoin ETF, not ETFs, um, the um, Grayscale Trust, you know, things like this, these Bitcoin derivatives, let's call them. Those are all opportunities for price manipulation on Bitcoin. But the big difference is we don't have central banks owning 25% of the Bitcoin supply and Bitcoin to take final settlement of Bitcoin is trivial compared to gold. So it's much more difficult to create these uh, derivative paper markets that can go up to 200 to one as we see with gold. If you own a derivative to something, you have an IOU to the asset, right? So if I own, if I have a paper certificate that says this is worth one kilogram of gold, well, I don't have gold. I have a piece of paper that says someone owes me one kilogram of gold. All right, I have counterparty risk. So what I'm, what I'm holding in my hand is an instrument of deferred settlement. That at some point, it's a promise that at some point in the future, the counterparty on that certificate will make good on the promise to deliver me one kilogram of gold. When they deliver the physical gold, that is final settlement, right? The IOU has been uh, extinguished. The gold has been delivered. The debt has been paid. The promise has been kept. Now, if those promises are expensive to execute as they are with gold, then it's more likely that you'll have more and more paper claims on the asset and less and less final settlement, which is again what we see. We see 200X uh, gold derivatives market to uh, actual physical gold in the world. My point is that since Bitcoin is 
trivial to take final settlement of, right? You just send someone a Bitcoin address and they send you Bitcoin through the internet or through the phone or whatever the electronic medium is. And there's very little risk involved. It can happen 24 by seven. You don't need armed guards. You don't need armored trucks or boats or any of that. You just need a few clicks and a counterparty that's good for it. My, my point is that people won't be able to manipulate the price of Bitcoin as substantially as they have of gold for that reason, right? Because it's supply is distributed. It's not centrally, uh, it's not concentrated in so few hands as gold is, you know, 20 to 25% of total supply held by central banks. And because Bitcoin is perfected portability, right? It can just move over space very easily. And so the capacity for people to opt out of these scams is much higher than it is with gold. Got it. Uh, what would change your mind on Bitcoin? I know you're a bullish, but what, uh, let's say, ne negative catalyst would change your mind? Well, um, this is like a big, this is why we're so bullish, right? Um, we talk a lot about adversarial thinking in Bitcoin, which is trying to look at the world through the eyes of your enemy. Right. Who, how could someone scam me or rug pull me or break this thing? And um, Bitcoin is designed to not, you know, it's, it's basically money wrapped in military grade encryption designed to hold a hard cap of 21 million and produce a new block of transactions every 10 minutes. So it's very simple software relatively, right? It doesn't have a large feature set on it. It just does very few things. It does them extremely well. And um, this, you know, the, asking that question is like, okay, well, obviously this technology is the ultimate enemy of the state. So what is the state going to do to stop it? And no one has a good answer. Like, you know, there's a bunch of talk about the state regulating endpoints and exchanges, you know, stopping you know, seizing centralized custodian assets, et cetera, et cetera. But none of that stops Bitcoin, right? TikTok next block, as we say. So what it, what it would take, I guess, to really shake my conviction in the asset is almost by definition unknowable because I think it takes a black swan and a black swan is not something you can talk about. It's an unknown unknown, right? Don't even know, I can't describe it to you until it happens and then say, oh, well, we never saw this coming. What could that take the form of? I mean, I could speculate and say uh, some type of global EMP, right? Something that wipes out all electronics worldwide permanently, some type of meteor strike, some type of um, maybe some t breakdown in an elliptic curve cryptography, you know, there's there's definitely technical aspects to Bitcoin that are beyond my pay grade that I'm sort of trusting um, the 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 open source development community right that that you have to basically unless you can read it yourself then you you are trusting people that have interpreted that code for you so I don't know I've got a big faith in human ingenuity I have a big faith in open source software in general because you have the most eyes on it, it tends to have the least problems, right? There's a, there's a gigantic incentive 
probably the biggest incentive there's ever been to do a thing is to stop Bitcoin, right? If you could stop Bitcoin and even a nation state, right? With unlimited, nearly unlimited resources, a money printer, a war machine, etc. Um, how, you know, how do they do it? We, we have China, the CCP is probably the most brutal authoritarian regime there has ever been on the face of the earth. And they've had this back and forth with Bitcoin, like outlawing it, re-legalizing it, outlawing it again. There's still 20 to 25% of the Bitcoin hash rate coming out of China, right? So if the most brutal authoritarian regime in human history can't stop Bitcoin, who can? Yeah, so, nice. yeah, I guess my short answer to your question is a black swan event. And since it's a black, black swan, I can't really tell you what that looks like. Uh, so another question would be, where do you see Bitcoin by the end of 2024 and by the end of that decade? Um, I don't have specific price predictions other than I did a couple of years ago, put out a prediction that I, I saw the US dollar hyperinflated by 2035. And I really just did this, you know, anyone who makes predictions about the future, uh, you know, if you live by the crystal ball, you're bound to eat glass. So all yeah. this taken with a, a grain of salt. I just looked at the pace at which we were debasing the dollar, and I compared that to the rate of debasement of past fiat currency hyperinflations, and I drew a parallel. Um, there's this, this is in a book titled Fiat Currency Inflation in France, talks about the law of accelerating issuance and depreciation. So every time you issue a new round of money printing, it actually creates conditions where the next round of money printing has to be exponentially larger because there are more liabilities being injected into the system and they grow geometric uh, each time because fiat currency is, in, is incentivizing indebtedness, right? When you have a, a money that's depreciating over time, the incentive of all market actors is to borrow the stronger dollars today and pay back the weaker dollars over time. So this borrowing actually further expands the money supply. So that when the next crash comes, you have like 10x the liabilities of last time. So the money printing needs to match, roughly match that liability structure. So um, to, to maintain the illusion of solvency, basically. So I think we're probably one or two economic bust away from a US dollar hyperinflation. And when the US dollar hyperinflates, I mean, the US dollar price of Bitcoin is gonna just be bananas. It's not even gonna make sense, right? It's yeah. probably gonna have million dollar candles up and down and all over the place. So, um, you know, I, I, don't, I don't like to make predictions like that because I'm not trying to give financial advice. I'm not, yeah. I don't want anyone to trade on it or whatever. It's my financial advice is study Bitcoin. <laughs> Ask yourself, what is money? You That's know, good advice, yep. Just learn to see through all of the illusions that have been cast because um, there's a big rabbit hole here, right? And Bitcoiners explore it fervently. And I think when you get a deeper understanding of the nature of money, you just get a deeper understanding of the nature of the world, human psychology, history, technology, etc. So um, that would be my financial advice is to actually study the asset rather than just go out and buy it blindly. Yeah, totally agree. Uh, last question. Uh, what would be your uh, three books recommendation? Three book recommendations. Yeah. Um, very hard question. <laughs> <sighs> I, 
a trio of books that I've recommended previously, and this is for anyone that wants to get out of the materialist worldview. All right, there's a lot of us that still think reality is made of matter. And in one sense it is, but reality is also made of what matters, right? It's about relevance. It's about uh, intersubjective valuation. It's about uh, our limited perceptions, reconciliation to truth, you know, like through the pricing system and language and all these other things. So uh, a trio of books that I like, that I would suggest to just shatter a materialist worldview. Uh, and you could read them probably in this order. First one would be uh, Leela by Robert Persig. It's a book about the metaphysics of quality or value. Mm -hmm. um, it's really well written. He's also the, the author of The Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. And the book kind of blends his autobiographical story with a fictional narrative with a philosophical exposition. It's really, really good. Uh, answers just a lot of questions about the nature of reality and gets, it sort of posits that value is fundamental rather than, than substance, let's say. Second book um, in this trio I'd recommend is Maps of Meaning by Jordan Peterson. Uh, he also goes into, uh, I think the first line in the book is like the world can be conceived of as made of things or as a forum for action. So he's going into the study of human action, which, you know, uh, Mises coined the term praxeology. He's talking about it, but not talking about it because he actually doesn't know anything about Mises or Austrian economics, he, but is explaining it through, uh, neuropsychology and mythology really like so these the deepest stories that humans have been using over time actually reflect a lot of these praxeological principles that we discovered much later in economics and the third book i would add to that trio is human action by mises that actually goes into you know he's the inventor of praxeology um the godfather of austrian economics and it just explains Economic, it's a very difficult book, very dense, um, but if you read it slowly and thoughtfully, um, I think you'll come away with a really strong understanding of how economics actually works. And it gives you kind of a rational foundation for the, the mythological territory covered in Peterson's book and the metaphysical territory covered in Persig's book. So I think three really good books to read. Got it. I will check them out. And lastly, where can people find you online? Yeah, I'm at whatismoneypodcast.com. There's links to everything there. And then my biggest social platform is Twitter. And my Twitter handle is at breedlove22, B-R-E-E-D-L-O-V-E-2-2. Got to make sure to, to follow Robert Breedlove. I will leave all the links below. And Robert, thank you so much for doing this. Thank you for having me.